Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with Matthew Heinemann about his new film, The Boy from Medellin. Yeah, so Matthew's documentary turns its gaze on reggaeton superstar J Balvin, um, who, you know, Medea and I both are obsessed with. Many listeners will know exactly who that is, you know, the genius behind hits like Mi Gente and others. And the documentary originally was supposed to focus on the end of his world tour when he came home to his his home country of Colombia and to his home city of Medellin. But what ends up happening as they're filming is political unrest kind of roils the streets as Colombian youth, but also a, a broader coalition of people began resisting the policies of the president there. So the film explores how J Balvin wrestles with the desire to just kind of be an entertainer, but then also the demands that fans and others are placing on him to make some kind of political statement and to address what's happening in the streets. I don't know why, for some reason, it's reminding me of um, Gimme Shelter. Oh, the Rolling Stones (laughs) documentary. Is that it starts off, you know, it's supposed to just document this concert and the camera happens to capture a murder. <laughs> a little bit different, but similar in some respects. Yeah, I think it, it, it speaks to having a camera present and um, you never know what's going to happen. So as long as you're taping, you don't know what the story is going to be in, until it's over. Yeah, and that tension is really central to the documentary, you know, which Matthew and I talk about in, in the conversation. Great. Well, let's listen to the interview. All right, let's do it. I'm excited to have Matthew Heinemann on the line with us today. Matthew is an Emmy-winning and Academy Award-nominated filmmaker whose work includes Cartel Land, a 2015 documentary about the Mexican drug trade, City of Ghosts, a 2017 film that followed Syrian citizen journalists as they struggled to tell the truth and resist ISIS forces that were overrunning the country, and A Private War, a biographical drama about war journalist Marie Colvin. He joins us today to talk about his latest documentary, The Boy from Medellin, which centers on reggaeton superstar Jay Balvin. If listeners don't already know who that is by name, they will recognize him as the voice and creative force behind such massive hits as Mi Gente, I Like It, which he sang with Cardi B and Bad Bunny, Agua, which was from the Sponge on the Run soundtrack, one of my favorite mentions, and countless other collaborations and songs he's done with international pop stars around the world. Heinemann's camera turns its gaze on Balvin as the pop star returns to his home city of Medellin, Colombia, for the last stop on his world tour. That homecoming takes a dramatic turn as the country is plunged into anti-government protests with Colombian youth and others striking back at President Ivan Duque's tax reform policies and the threat of rising inequality and a widening gulf between the political class and the people that roils the country. Caught between the desire to entertain and lift spirits, as well as the demands of fans on social media and elsewhere, that he speak to the political crisis of his homeland, Heinemann's lens trains itself on Jay Balvin as the superstar and his reputation and tour are all on the line. Thanks for joining us this morning, Matthew. Thanks for having me. So I guess we can start out with by saying that this is quite a different sort of film for you, 
right? Like, I mean, it has its political context, which is very much kind of your focus as, you know, listeners can glean from the previous films that I mentioned at the top. But it seems like you don't tend to focus necessarily on superstars in the same way in your work, but rather a kind of nitty gritty of complicated international politics and crime. So if you can talk just a little bit about how you got involved in the project and what this process of making the film was like for you. Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely, at least in its its early stages before we actually shot it, it was definitely a departure for me. I think it ended up becoming closer to a normal film that I make at the end of it. But, you know, when it first started, you know, originally it was supposed to be just a, a concert film following mm-hmm. Jose going back to his hometown of Medellin for the biggest show of his life. And that was sort of the conceit. And, you know, for me, it was just exciting to sort of try to flex different muscles and creatively and make something that was a little bit more fun and entertaining. And so, you know, that was the original conceit, but I wanted to meet Jose before I agreed to do the film to make sure that, you know, I'd have access to at least tell it in as intimate a way as I'm used to telling stories. And so I went to a show of his at Madison Square Garden. We met afterwards in the green room and, you know, he'd been struggling for years with anxiety and depression, something that, you know, I, myself have struggled with more so, you know, PTSD and anxiety. And so we really connected over that. And so it seemed from that initial meeting that, you know, he's very forthright with his emotions and it seemed like he'd be someone that would open up. And so after that meeting, I I said, let's go forward and let's do this. Little did I know that when we landed in Columbia, the film took on a whole different perspective. I mean, and in a sense, that's where you can rely almost uniquely on your own experience, the kind of documentaries and even, you know, the kind of biographical dramas that you specialize in kind of must have helped prepare you for how to change things up, you know, really quickly. So was that kind of training like something that you felt like maybe this wasn't the story you were expecting to tell, but it gave you the kind of flexibility that you needed to be able to tell the story that was happening right in front of you? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when I was 21 years old, a mentor of mine said, if you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way. <laughs> but that's a great editorial note, actually. Which I, I believe is good advice for life in general and is definitely good advice for filmmaking. You know, don't be dogmatic, be open to the mm-hmm. story you And so that's something I've held near and dear to my heart, both in sort of a macro sense with the decisions I make in my career, but also in a micro sense within each film and then even on an hour-to-hour sense of being willing to change the plan as inevitable hurdles happen each day. So this film was no exception. When we landed in Columbia and the protests, the likes of which they hadn't seen in decades, were beginning, it was clear that this film could change. And so as a filmmaker, that was exciting to sort of adapt to this new reality. And you know, what the film actually became was really a meditation on what is the role of an artist. As one of the more famous people in Colombia, many people were looking to Jose to say something. And he, his position was, you know, I'm just an entertainer. Why do I need to be political? And sort of this inner monologue really became the sort of the center of the film of what is his role? Does he have a responsibility to speak out? And what is that responsibility? And over the course of this week, that really tortured him. He didn't know what to do. And it sort of coincided with the tensions of the concert and the pressures of the concert and his own sort of anxiety over it all. And so this all sort of swirled through this week crescendoing with the concert. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things that that was actually my next question for you is this kind of 
as you've said quite eloquently, it's like at least one of the major questions that I think the film grapples with is the role of the artist in contemporary culture and politics. And also, as you said, you know, Jay Balvin, and we'll get into the question of brand too, because there's Jay Balvin and then there's Jose, who's like the actual human being. And he's forced into kind of making a political statement, you know, is his mega platform. He even feels demands a kind of accountability for speaking not only for Medellin's youth, but also to fans worldwide. I mean, how do you parse those things? Like, how do you feel about the political responsibility of the artist? And, you know, in some ways, I kept finding myself asking as I was watching and watching clearly in the war room type scenes that you're able to capture where they're trying to figure out what to do whether or not we put too much pressure on entertainers to be coherently is not exactly quite the right word, but to be political in contemporary society. I think across media, across, I mean, every aspect of across politics, you know, everything that we're experienced on a day-to-day basis is this sort of this fight for airwaves, fight for the narrative, fight for space in this ever clogged world of information that we're living in. And so, I don't know, it's such an interesting debate of, and that's really what the film is, is Mm -hmm. I have my own views, of course, but I, you know, I don't, my films, I'm not in my films, you don't hear voiceover of myself. My dream out of this film is that a hundred people watch the film and a hundred people come away with a different opinion of what they would do if they were in history. Because I don't think it is black or white. And I think it's, I do think we put too much weight and onus on celebrities in people with, you know, X million Instagram followers to be <laughs> parse information for us. I don't personally have that expectation. I don't look to the celebrities or athletes to tell me what to think or do. I know a lot of other people do feel that way. Which is so, its own problem. If then like influencers are supposed to be the ones telling you how to think, like that's in some ways absolving the individual of like the responsibility to think and meditate deeply politically. Or seek out their own information. Yeah. So I guess in some ways I deeply empathize with Jose because, you know, it was not an envious position to be in. And, you know, there's obviously a long history of musicians speaking out and making, taking political stands. And then there's an equally long history of, you know, musicians and, and artists just quote unquote being entertainers, as Jose says in the movie. So what do you think? I don't know. I mean, again, I think that you put it perfectly before, which is that there is no clear black or white answer. I think that one can only answer it for oneself. And that also depends on the perspective that one is speaking from, right? So in a certain sense, it is easier, and this will kind of dovetail into a question that I have for you about branding. It's easier for certain people, like yourself as a documentary filmmaker, I would imagine, to have a clear set of, yes, you can tell from my films, some of my political commitments, that's politics is an avowed part of your work. So it would then be only natural for you to speak and share how you feel about various things. I think it gets different when a person is is really just an entertainer, not just a, you know, like that sounds as if it's diminishing, but rather if their role is not about kind of political journalism, for example, but about entertainment, you know, singing love songs, singing pop songs. I think that it's it's harder. And in some ways, I understand the platform demands a certain kind of responsibility. When you have a microphone in front of you and you have people's attention, you should always use it for good. But I think it is, especially as I was watching the film, it's a lot of pressure. And to kind of move into this next question about 
a kind of inescapable question in the film as you capture what's going on during this time is a question about branding, you know, of kind of who Jay Balvin is, not so much as a person, but as a kind of pop commodity and also as a business. Indeed, there's several moments, I think, actually in the film where that push and pull, that tension between Jay Balvin and Jose Alvaro Sorio Balvin feel quite pointed in the sense that Jay Balvin is this kind of avatar or person that Jose puts in front of the world in many ways also to protect his private self. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it was like to navigate those dynamics as a filmmaker who had really unprecedented access and whether it was ever difficult or a struggle to get the real Jose on camera. That was the whole challenge. I mean, most of my films that I've made have elapsed over, you know, months or years. I mean, I think the shortest I've ever shot is probably nine months, maybe 10 months. That's not scientific, but a long time. (laughs) With this film, I literally gave myself the goalpost of you have one week to make this movie, to shoot this movie. That's crazy. (laughs) So not only did we have have a week to shoot this movie leading up to the concert, but we had a week to develop trust and rapport and Mm. get that intimacy that, that you see in the film. And so we were totally prepared to make you know, a version of the sort of classic concert film, you know, with, you know, seeing the city and the show and, you know, interviews mm-hmm. with his family and his friends. I mean, sort of a more traditional film. And we actually did shoot that as well. I mean, we shot interviews with all, you know, his friends and family. But again, when we landed there and we saw the realities of what was happening there and we saw how this was affecting him, my sort of verite instincts snapped in and I used every neuron in my body and to try to tell this intimate story of this struggle. And so we basically filmed 16, 18 hours a day, every day until the concert. And it it was, wow. you know, this is a guy who's obviously used to having cameras around, Mm -hmm. but he's never had cameras around in this way. You know, he's never had people just, obviously most of what he does, either music videos or very staged sort of commercial shoots or branding shoots. But my sort of fly on the wall filmmaking was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. And so- You know, that's why I love what I do, because it's not the proposal to someone like Jose is not is in theory an easy one, which is just you be yourself and we're going to tag along and become a part of the fabric of your daily life. And we're going to be there from when you get up to when you go to bed. And I hope you're okay okay with that. And and obviously (laughs) those were discussions and, and I had to gain his trust to be able to do that. But that all happened really quickly. And so we were able to tell a story in that way. listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Matthew Heineman about his new documentary, The Boy from Medellin. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Claire Phillips calling in. Claire Phillips is a lecturer in critical studies at CalArts. And her newest book is called A Room with a Darker View. It's a memoir about her mother and her mother's battle with schizophrenia. And Claire has a book to recommend. Claire, what's your book? 
Hi, Kate. Um, I'm so excited to do this. I love your program. I wanted to recommend to people this uh, book that came out in 2013, but I think still it's very relevant. It's called Schizophrenia, A Brother Finds Answers in Biological Science. And it sounds a little bit academic, but for those of us with family members with schizophrenia or the, the collected schizophrenias, a book like this is really, really important. And I'll just say that I I stumbled across this work when I was adjuncting a number of years ago and taking care of my mother in the throes of her last relapse with schizophrenia. Um, It was a really tough time. I was teaching everywhere under the sun and I was very glad for the work, but it didn't leave me much time to do a lot of academic research, which I wanted to do on this topic. So by happenstance, I found this newly published book right when my mother was really going through the last few months of her life. And it, it just answered so many questions for me. And it's beautifully written because it alternates in chapters uh, of a memoir about his brother, James, who suffered from schizophrenia roughly at the same time, the advent of which was roughly at the same time as my mother in the late 50s, kind of toggles back and forth between his brother's life in multiple institutions and care settings um, and his own life. And, and he posits the question, I think a lot of us do, when we have family members who suffer from these what I would call a chronic illness, an illness that you can't just, you know, six months treatment does not make it go away. You have to live with it. It can be worse. Sometimes it can be better. Treatments suck. Sometimes they can be great. And I I found that really powerful, mainly because he talks about something that I I found so difficult. I'm just going to read to you. He talks about you know, a couple of things he says about people with schizophrenia that I thought was really powerful. One is that no two cases are the same. Everyone's case is different. So you really have to talk to people with an illness specific to them, which requires a lot of care and empathy and understanding and and a voice. People have to have a voice. I think that's why first person accounts are so important and vital right now. Um, But he also talks about the burden of guilt and anguish of unanswered questions that are familiar to anyone who's had a loved one in this situation. I think he talked about his life being shadowed by his brother's illness. And I think I felt that way with my mother, that there is a tremendous sense of guilt that why does this one family member not get to experience all the things everyone else does? Because paranoid schizophrenia, unless it's really well treated young, can leave you in a situation where you're not able to trust people and and you can't participate as widely as maybe someone else. And that's only if you don't get treatment. And if you don't get it young, you have to get treatment young. So, right. And it's also, I think, a disease that we think of as being um, hereditary and genetic. So the fact of one family member being sick, I'm sure that a shadow is also, it could have been me. It might still be me one day, I think, for a lot of people who have relatives who suffer from mental illness. That's right. There's late onset illness. And I think we don't discuss that enough. I just was rereading some of the statistics in this book. And that's what I failed to mention was really, he gives such a great breakdown on the heritability, which is like 80%, like your as much as you, your hair is hereditary, which is, I guess, a lot. It's not as bad as it may have been when I was reading about it in my 20s, but it is it is considerable and you do want to think about it. And it was something that I think affected me and my willingness to have children. I didn't want to pass this on to anyone. And he talks about that and he talks about the genetics and he also talks about hope and possible scientific breakthroughs, which are really important too. 
Yeah. And did his brother, you know, what happened with his brother? Did he receive treatment or no? I mean, he had a variety of treatments and I think at the end, but he wasn't able to live an independent life. My mother had a full career. She had a marriage. She had two children. She was a lawyer in England, in New York, in New Jersey. She ran her own practice. She went to Oxford. She had a really, a, a large life considering the, you know, vicissitudes of this kind of illness and the limitations that are placed on you if you, it doesn't get treated. In that way, she was a little bit exceptional. James, unfortunately, did not get to live outside of a kind of board and care or state institutions. His one stint of being independent didn't go that well. And again, we have to remember there just weren't the antipsychotics, second generation antipsychotics, Seroquel and other types of drugs are really much more effective than maybe the first generation Haldol, which good at quelling the hallucinations and delusions, but not good at treating secondary symptoms, which largely upend people could be the anhedonia, not having um, feelings, uh, strong feelings, a lack of feeling, um, a volition, depression, just kind of becoming more introverted and not really being able to reach out. And my mother's experience really varied. Every time she had a relapse, she'd end up in a really harrowing situation where we didn't think she would recover. I wrote about it because I was so angry that there were not more resources. 2013, a federal law was passed to require to some degree parity between mental health and biological health. And they're just, you don't, the insurance companies say, you're out of here two weeks. That's all you get. Goodbye. I I mean, this is a very sad tale, but I know a young woman who recently ended her life two weeks after a, a psychiatric stint. She had depression. She wasn't stabilized on the drug house. It's that bad. It's that bad. And they were very wealthy. You can have a lot of privilege. And as we know, uh, people of, of color uh, are much more uh, likely to be harmed when they go to get help than white people of privilege. So these are big, big questions that need to be Raise. And I think, you know, what you said about his brother, that family could afford to give him that kind of care. It's so expensive. At the end of my mother's life, I wanted her in a home with psychiatric care. I didn't want her alone in her apartment. My brother told me, we can't do it. It's 9000 a month. What if she recovers and she has not a penny left? So that's very, very important to me, discussions around care. And I think we're pretty negligent. You can see how many people are on the street any and every one of whom would be my mother if she didn't have alimony. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a really important book. And as along with your book, can you tell me the title and author again? Yes. It's schizophrenia. I probably neglected to get that in schizophrenia. <laughs> a brother finds answers in biological science. It sounds a bit dry, but it's really, really impressive. Um, and it's by the professor emeritus uh, Ronald Chase and published by John Hopkins. It's really for anyone really, really concerned about this really broad topic. The history is amazing. He goes into the stigma, the psychiatric history. And then each chapter is concluded with bullet points that break down. It's it's difficult material, some of this. And it breaks it down very simply for people to understand. It's, it's complex. There's a rich history. Thank you, Claire. That was Claire Phillips giving us book recommendation. Her latest book is A Room with a Darker View. You're listening to the Laura Brady Hour. We now return to our conversation with Matthew Heineman, director of The Boy from Medellin. To return to um, a topic that you were talking about earlier, 
which is Jose's very public struggle with depression and anxiety. Um, and, and that's a topic that for a long time he has been very, uh, and I think incredibly refreshingly forthcoming about. So I can only imagine as somebody who, and you said that you have PTSD, I can only imagine how intense those emotions and feelings must have been around the period that you're capturing on camera. And those moments actually made me feel the, and I'm speaking of moments like when he's sitting on the, laying on the couch with his girlfriend, and you can actually see in the tight shots of his face, the kind, and I recognize it myself, you know, because I also experienced that in a much less, you know, high octane way, but that kind of, you know, the spinning of the thoughts, you know, is like somebody is trying to calm you down and he's just got literally so much on his mind. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to film some of those intense exchanges and also the the oddness of how, I mean, this is on the one hand, a very obvious story that he is feels quite isolated by his incredible fame, but you capture the intimacy of what that kind of anxiety feels like for somebody that also suffers from anxiety and depression. Yeah, I mean, look, I think anxiety and depression don't discriminate, you know, based on, you know, the amount of money you have or where you're from or the color of your skin. And, you know, Jose is, is obviously no exception. I think this is something that he battled long before he became famous. You know, this yeah. is part of the fabric of, of who he is. And it sort of crescendoed and, and dipped at different points in his life. But I think, again, I'm not a psychiatrist and my job as a documentary filmmaker is not to apply any sort of psychoanalysis per se on, on my subject. But, I, th you know, he, he talks about, you know, this, this sort of challenge and this uh, friction between this public persona of Jay Balvin, this sort of playboy with money and cars and, and you know, jewelry, and then this really humble sort of shy Jose, which is him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, this is a guy with, I don't know, 40 million plus Instagram followers. And, right. <laughs> and, and, but at its heart, he really is just a normal guy. You see that in the film, but you, it's definitely true. Like, you know, whether you're Jay-Z or, you know, the PA on my crew, he treats you exactly the same. You know, that's a wonderful thing. But I think that, that tension between those two sides of himself absolutely contribute to his unhappiness at times. And, you know, I think if, if he had a choice, he would make music videos or play concert shows and then go home and just be with his friends and not have to deal with all the trappings of fame. Right. Um, and look, in the scheme of life, he's extremely lucky. But I think, yeah, it was just, th these were all really interesting themes for me to explore. And, and I think, you know, it's just, it's rare that all this stuff came out so quickly in, in this one week of filming. Okay, so this, you know, it brings me to a question that listeners to the show will know that I've been thinking about for a number of years, which is the role of social media in contemporary culture. And obviously, social media is a huge part of the story in your film, and it actually drives a significant amount of the action. And you can see this in the, in the moments where Jay Balvin is responding to kind of fans, usually on Instagram, that are calling him out for not speaking out sooner or not saying specific things or, you know, the list goes on and on. And I'm wondering kind of how you feel about social media, both in our kind of age of 
ongoing political crises and whether or not that helps or, or hurts causes. But also kind of the to tie some of the elements about uh, mental health that we were talking about before together, the the way in which social media does offer megastars like Jay Balvin immediate access to fans and that kind of emotional intimacy. But it also provides a forum for, you know, kind of what we used to call armchair critics to call out, you know, and often in unkind and quite thoughtless, even anonymous language, um, their favorite celebrities for not kind of perfectly aligning with their politics or expectations on an individual level. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like we could speak for 12 hours about... Right, but, not a small uh, question. Yeah, That's a lot, lot to chew on. I mean, look, I, I have many views of social media and, and I don't think any of them are necessarily going to you know, blow your mind. I mean, I think mm-hmm. our world is so divided and... and, and, and especially our country, it's, it's, to me, that's one of the greatest tragedies of, of the world we're living in today is how divided we are. And obviously we see that in Washington, but, but I, but I don't yeah. think that social media helps. I don't think that large tech companies help. I think they are further dividing us. And, you know, we all live in echo chambers. We, we follow the people we want to hear from. We seek out the information that, you know, uh, reinforces our own beliefs and social media plays a massive role in, in all of that. And, you know, I think vis-a-vis Jose, you know, I think the other part of this as well is I think he, mental health and destigmatizing mental health is something that he decided several years ago to, to, to come out from the shell of experiencing this on his own and to talk about it publicly. Yeah. And that was a huge deal, especially from, for someone in Latin America as a man to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think he sort of felt like, look, I've really put myself out there on this extremely intimate issue that is, that is that troubles me in the hopes of helping others. And, you know, what else do you want from me? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's, it's sort of what, what, what he felt. You know, obviously over the course of the week, he was given different perspectives. But you also have this platform and people need to know what do you think about it? And you could, you, a little pressure from you could help tip the scales. I mean, this is the, this is the whole debate of this film. And his manager, Scooter Bond, came down and said, you know, you have this responsibility to say something. And then, you know, other, other colleagues of his and friends of his said, look, you know, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So you're just an entertainer. So, you know, he's presented with the sort of plethora of options <laughs> um, and there's almost a, you know a case study in celebrity activism I guess right like gaming out which of those is the right option and against which other options you have yeah and and, 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 and on what metric are you gaining are you determining what the right answer is are, is it what's best for your career is it right. what's best for the world right. is it what's best for your Instagram followers is it what's, is it what's best for your you know album that's coming out in two weeks like how do you gauge that that, that question and obviously only the only person that can answer that is Jose. Yeah. But, 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 but with, you know, all caps, asterisk, fireworks <laughs> is, is, you know, he has a whole machine around him that, that, you know, is part of who he is as well. Exactly. You know, and I think that people a lot of times forget that is that it's like you see as a fan, you see the individual star, but it's like a whole, um, corporation is not exactly the right word that I want to use, but there's a whole infrastructure behind that. There's a whole series of people that are depending on that individual as well. 
you know, not only for, you know, their livelihoods, but everything else. Like it's, so it's always bigger than just that one person and having to like balance all of those competing um, claims on yourself, I, I imagine must be incredibly difficult. And I'm sure, and that's uh, in many ways, which you do capture in such intimate kind of tight shots in the film. You know, part of what's so insidious about anxiety is that it's not something that you can necessarily always see. You know, it's often sort of a silent thing that affects people. And, and you know, with, with Jose, he does really wear it on his on his sleeve. You know, you you do feel it in him. And so to, to capture that was was important to me. And and you know, I've I've an enormous, enormous, enormous amount of respect for him uh, for having the bravery to let me capture it in such an intimate way. You know, he talked about anxiety, he tweeted about anxiety, he Instagram videoed about anxiety. I don't know if that's the right word, but he to see it up close is a whole different thing. And so I think, I'm not sure he'll ever want to have a crew filming him the way I, I, I filmed him. <laughs> but, but I think he's very, very proud of what we, you know, of the film because it, you know, it does show um, in real time how this is all processed. Yeah, and you know, as we, as we kind of wrap up here, I did want to to kind of ask you more or less like a, a craft question, which is, you know, in the film you're navigating at, for the, all the production reasons that, that we've talked about already and kind of like you had the sense of the story you were going to tell, then you hit the ground and that story changes radically. But in the film you're kind of navigating at least three dramatic and actually quite different threads that you pull together, which is one that story about an intimate look at a global pop star and in some ways documenting his uh, kind of story and struggle with anxiety and depression. You're tackling street protests and political unrest in Medellin, Colombia. And then you're also trying to tackle the final loop of a megastars concert tour. So I'm wondering kind of in post how you managed balancing those three storylines so that they feel as seamless as they feel in the film you know, when I'm sure you had an intense week of, like you were saying, 18 hours a day, like lots of film and trying to just string it all together in a story that, you know, makes sense for the viewer. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the challenge in, in cutting a doc is, is, you know, first of all, a thousand different filmmakers would make a thousand different films with that material. Sure, uh, sure. You know, anyone who says that, your objective as a filmmaker is, is, is obviously lying. I mean, every time you change angles, every time you press the button in the edit room, every time you do whatever, you're injecting subjectivity into the storytelling. You know, I think what I always try to do, my, my general North Star is trying, you know, whether it's cartel land with a group of vigilantes fighting cartels in Mexico or City of Ghosts with a group of activists, you know, exposing the atrocities of ISIS in Syria, whatever the story is, you know, there's a feeling you have in a room and there's a feeling you have on the ground, uh, you know, there's a feeling that you have on the Zoom call, you know, and mm-hmm. so what I what I try to do is is put people in, you know, on the ground and make you feel as if you're feeling the wind in, in, in the mountains or, or, or the fear on someone's face or the, you know, the tangible nature of, of being a shootout. Um, in, in Mexico, like whatever that whatever that scene is, I want I want to put you there, and I want to make you feel that same thing that I felt when I was capturing it. And so, if we've even remotely done that, then we've succeeded. And so that's that's always my my goal, my north star. And so, 
you know, in, in sort of piecing this together, it was really trying to sort of make you feel like you're in Jose's shoes on this yeah. roller coaster for a week and, you know, in this sort of meta debate of, of what is this role in, in this world through, you know, sort of scene-based verite documentary filmmaking. Uh, finally, kind of what, what about shooting the film or kind of the experience of producing it surprised you? And, you know, kind of what do you think that you will take away from the experience? It's nice to shoot a doc in one week. <laughs> sure, produ- compressed production schedules are a blessing and a curse, but I could definitely see the blessing part. I don't know. I mean, you, you learn so much when you make films, and that's why I love what I do. And, and I take what I do very seriously, and I feel a huge responsibility in, with what I do is that, you know, every couple of years, and, and, I mean, this year I've had a, quite a busy year, but um, you sort of dive, you have the you know fortune of diving into a new world and exploring it. And, and what a privilege to be able to do so. So can we also give uh, listeners kind of a sense of what you've got coming up next? I know it's been a crazy busy year for you. Um, so what's, you know, what's coming down the pike from you next? I am putting the finishing touches on a, on a doc I, I made about COVID when, when we all sort of woke up in, in last spring and, and saw what was happening, I um, gained access to film inside a hospital inside New York City um, where I live. Mm-hmm. And so I spent about four months filming inside of a hospital during the first wave, during the surge in New York. And it was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, you know, I think a film that I'm, I'm really proud of and ultimately became sort of a portrait of New York over these four months through the lens of, of uh, a doctor that we followed, a nurse and a couple of patients. So that's going to be coming out this fall, hopefully. All right, that sounds great. So listeners can look forward to seeing that. We have been speaking with Matthew Heinemann, director most recently of The Boy from Medellin. Thanks so much for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.